Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, this is Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times, and we're going to try something different today. We're going to get a little news and notes like we always do, but then we're going to hit some listener questions. we got 10 of them picked out here. Uh, sorry if we didn't pick your questions. Some of it was brevity. Some of it was uh, just the topic either was uh, too, too intense for us or uh, too hot for TV or whatever, but uh, we'll get into some some frivolity and also some meaty questions as well. Andy, I was down in Charlotte for the NASCAR stuff, so I wasn't at uh, Castle Coliseum on Monday night for that big victory by Virginia Tech. What did you think of that basketball win they got? I'll be honest, I didn't watch a whole lot of it myself. I followed along on Twitter. Uh, I think we texted uh, back and forth a couple times during the game. Uh, they needed that. I mean, they needed that desperately. You had written the column uh, after they lost to Florida State. It's like, who exactly has this team beaten? Nobody. Uh, I think Washington might have been the best uh, in the RPI. R- RPI win. Uh, not a very impressive uh, resume up to that point, but you te- beat a team like North Carolina, uh, number 10 in the country. Maybe not quite as good as past North Carolina. I mean, they won the national championship last year, so – uh, not as good as is that year's team, but I mean that's still a premier program in college basketball uh, to win that game and to do it where I mean they just played better throughout. It wasn't like a fluke or anything like that. I think they just were the team that played much harder and much better throughout that game. Uh, maybe that's the thing that can get this team going. I, I I don't think right now that they have an NCAA tournament resume even with no. that win. But if that can kind of spur on something the rest of the season, I think you could possibly see them go to bigger and better things based off of that. Yeah, Carolina was ranked third in the RPI, so that's a pretty good pretty good win for sure. I, one of the things I texted you, and, and people aren't going to like me saying this, but I was, you know, Buzz was going crazy on the sidelines, and people tell, say, well, that's what he does all the time. And I'm, I'm like, no, I, I have not seen that from him this year. Um, he didn't do it against Virginia, and that was a game they could have used some energy because the building was half full. You know, students weren't there. Uh, he really put on a show for that that ESPN crew that was in there doing all his histrionics. But you know, the flip side of it is, it is it works. I mean, he, his energy and that team's energy was as high as it's been. The crowd's energy was as high as it's been in all season, higher than it's been all season. Um, you know, we're reminded once again of how difficult that place is to play when it's rocking. They really didn't give them a reason to rock against Florida State. Uh, Florida State led that game by double digits most of the second half. But certainly you see uh, on Monday night what it looks like when the team's playing hard, the fans are into it, and the coaches into it. Yeah, I think Buzz knows when the camera is on him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he worked up quite a sweat in the first half. In the second half, he wear the Frank Beamer shirt out yeah. there on the sideline. Like, he knows how to play to the crowd, to the cameras All and stuff like that. was a baby for him to kiss or something. <laughs> yeah, you know it's very, very uh, politician-like of him. Uh, you're right, though. I, I think the team does got to feed off of that on the sideline. even had, like, a little controversial thing there where he thought uh, – uh, a timeout was a media timeout came out like on the court after a stoppage. And then the North Carolina coach was like, what the heck, what the heck's going on? Like it was quickly diffused and everything like that. But it's just like, I sort of feel like that's when buzz is at his best is when he's maybe a little irritating to the other side, a little grating 
uh, to have that many histrionics on the sideline. But certainly you need your team to respond, and this team seems to respond when he, he's acting like that or, or you know, sort of giving those kind of cues. Well, the interesting thing is I asked him after the Virginia game. I said, I, said, I noticed you weren't really – you know, jumping around, you weren't, you know, cracking the whip or anything like that. Like you, like you often do. Uh, what, what's the story there? He says, I just don't think that's the right way to get these guys better this year. And, and the, you read into that, you say, well, it's because they're veteran players, the starters, the, the rotation is all, you know, third or fourth year guys, even fifth year guys. So maybe they don't need that, uh, that stick and carrot, like some, like a younger team would, but I think maybe what happened there, and I would have asked him if I'd have been there, but maybe what happened there is he decided they did need that. You know, maybe he figured that out. It wasn't just the TV was there, but it, it was also that, Hey, maybe these guys do need a kick in the pants that I haven't been giving them. Well, it kind of comes back to effort and getting the maximum effort out of your team. And uh, there's not really a better effort stat than rebounding. And I think Virginia Tech out-rebounded North Carolina in that game. And they have a small lineup. They shouldn't out-rebound North Carolina. North Carolina, I think, is a pretty good rebounding team up among the national leaders. Uh, again, I'm not a basketball beat writer, so I don't follow this stuff that closely. They're playing but, a little smaller this year than they normally do, but okay. they're still a better rebounding team than Tech. Yeah, sure. to, to out-rebound North Carolina in that game, I think that's a very big deal. And, and, and you know, Maybe some of that is Virginia Tech shot the ball better than North Carolina did, too, so there weren't as many rebounding opportunities. But... Uh, yeah, it just looked like a completely different team out there than, than some of the efforts they've had in some of these other games. And you saw how they hung with Kentucky earlier this year. I think they've got a chance to, to do something to get into the tournament. If they start playing like they did the other night more frequently, uh, it's a tough thing to do in the ACC though. It's such a deep conference and so many different, uh, you know, styles. I mean, you got Virginia, you've got North Carolina, Duke, it's just a lot of different styles coming at you. It's tough to win in that league. So uh, the, like we said last time when we talked, they have plenty of opportunities with the schedule to beat uh, some ranked teams, some well-thought-of teams, and sort of put together a resume that would be NCAA tournament worthy. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if this was sort of the jump start to that whole thing. Yeah, definitely. They go to Notre Dame this weekend. We'll see how they fare there, and we'll keep an eye on that going forward. Uh, football news, we know where Trayvon McMillan has wound up. Tell us, tell our listeners. Uh, he is going to Colorado. Uh, which yeah, I've read a little bit about Colorado's running back situation. It sounds like it's a good situation to go into in terms of playing time. Uh, it's funny. You, you read all this stuff, and I was reading the Colorado beat writers writing about this, and they cite Trayvon McMillan might be just what this offense needs, and they said 2,100 yards, 16 touchdowns rushing, and then you, you would read it from a Virginia Tech side of it, and it's like, well, his production has decreased over time, and I think the Colorado writer kind of explains, well, scheme changes are the reason for this. I, I just think it's 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 always a grass is greener uh, situation where it depends on your perspective on something on how good you think a player is going to be. So uh, interesting uh, location for him to end up. You know, obviously I, I enjoyed covering Trayvon. He was always very nice uh, to interview, uh, talk to, and all that. So I wish him the best in that. I think it's probably a beneficial situation for everybody because it didn't seem like he was going to be sort of a, a primary ball carrier tech. And if he's not going to be that guy and other people are going to get that job, it just makes sense for him to go somewhere else and get that opportunity. And that frees up a scholarship for tech to use down the line. So, uh, you know, when people say the graduate transfer rule, Oh, people are taking advantage of that. It's just free agency in college football. It's like, no, sometimes it's legitimately used like this where it's like, uh, you know, in Trayvon's case, he will complete his degree in the spring. That's what student athletes do. He's right. filled in his end of the bargain here. He's done what he's supposed to do. 
uh, I have no problem with him going somewhere else and playing a, a senior year like that. Yeah, I love the graduate transfer rule, and I'm with you. I'm pulling for him in Colorado. I hope he does well. He's, he certainly was, was fun to deal with, and, and I was pulling for him here. I mean, I wanted to see him get back in, into a, a, a prominent role that just never happened, so maybe he'll find that uh, out west. Uh, another note, we talked last week about how Kuiper, Mel Kuyper Jr. had tr- uh, Tremaine Edmonds ranked 12th or, or going 12th in his mock draft to Cincinnati. After we taped that, uh, Kuiper had a very interesting quote that you pulled here. Uh, tell us what Kuiper said about Tremaine. Well, it was on a teleconference uh, that ESPN does, and he was just gushing about Tremaine Edmonds. I mean, he started off, I think Tremaine's a physical and athletic specimen. You could say freakish talent, just a top level athlete. He goes on and on. He talks about uh, being that size, six, five as an inside linebacker potentially. And, uh, you know, we've said it jokingly kind of over the years, because it's always a buzzword to use with real uh, big athletes like that rangy athletes, <laughs> long arms, but that length matters. And Kuiper was talking about how, uh, you know, quarterbacks don't like a real tall, a lengthy middle linebacker like that. They can get arms up and passing lanes and things like that. So uh, he just thinks the, the world of Tremaine Edmonds and he thinks he has tremendous upside. And then I go uh, a couple days later, Daniel Jeremiah, NFL.com, NFL Network, uh, has Tremaine as the number three overall prospect on his board. I think he did a mock draft and he had him going ninth to the 49ers. Uh, and obviously the draft, it, it's about filling needs and quarterbacks are always going to go higher than perhaps they're listed just based on, uh, you know, pure talent. If you were ranking them just based on how good they are, uh, you know, I, we, we watched him for a couple of years now and saw him all last season. I thought he was a, a, an excellent prospect. I don't know if I ever thought he'd be number three, uh, in the draft level. And obviously this is just one person's opinion. It's going to vary across different uh, pre-draft projections like this, but did you, did you ever sense you were watching the potential number three prospect uh, in a draft class? You know, to be honest, I don't follow the draft enough, and it's so much about need, and it's so much about that. That no, uh, I didn't know that this this was going to be the the accolades or the praise that he was getting at this point. Uh, I always found him to be you know as impressive an athlete as I've seen come through Blacksburg, but. Uh, I didn't know how that would translate nationally. I'm often wrong when I try to predict those things. It's interesting because, you know, with Jacksonville doing what it did, nearly beating New England um, with basically just a defense, that's what they have. Um, and and Philly, you know, riding a, a really good defense to the Super Bowl. You know, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, maybe this is this is the way you construct your teams now. You build your defense. You build these great linebackers and these great front fours and, and go from there. If that's the case, that's good news for Tremaine, of course. Yeah, uh, it's it's just this NFL draft is so much of it is about upside, and you know we talked a little bit in the lead up to the draft that Tremaine is very young for be even being a true junior. Uh, you know, all the Edmonds brothers reclassified when they were coming up through the ranks, uh, so he wasn't necessarily uh, his age group when he was coming out of high school. So I, he's, I think he might be twenty. I think somebody noted that. Uh, Jake Fromm, the redshirt freshman quarterback who just finished uh, his redshirt freshman season at Georgia and took him to the national championship, is older than Tremaine Edmonds is as a true junior. So that sort of gives you a sense of uh, how young he is. And I think an NFL team looking at that goes, well, if he's that good right now, just wait till he gets some more experience and some more reps and gets into a, you know, NFL weight room and things like that. And uh, you know, as good as Tremaine's stock looks right now, I, c- I can't imagine it's going to be hurt by going to the combine. Yeah. I mean, as soon as he's, 
you know, coaches see a guy at that size that runs the way he does and then, you know, goes through all the position drills. And, uh, you know, we've spoken a lot of times about the, the Edmonds family, how just sort of well put together all of the, you know, well-rounded family. Uh, you know, you talk to these guys, you're going to come away more impressed than just if you, you hadn't done that through them. So that, that's a big part of the draft process is the interviews and everything that goes along with that. Uh, I, I just don't see his stock dropping very much uh, in the lead up to this thing. Well, you covered Chris Long at Virginia, right? For a little I bit, I did. Yeah, and, and you know that that goes into it too when you talk about family. I mean, they saw Farrell Edmonds perform very well in the NFL, and that that works in all sports, baseball, football. I mean, you're going to get uh, a little bit of a boost just because hey, they've seen somebody in that family, they've seen your father uh, do well at this level. That that makes it more likely in their minds that you're going to do well as well. And of course, Chris Long was dominant at Virginia. Uh, it, it didn't take a genius, you know. You didn't have to be Howie Long's kid to be uh, recognized, but I, I know that didn't hurt. No, it didn't. And I, I think uh, you know, we always ask Al Grow about the recruiting process. And actually, the first game I ever covered when I was at uh, Lynchburg News in Advance, I got there in like November of uh, 2003, I think. And the first game I covered was a state semifinal uh, between St. Anne's Belfield and Lynch, at the time, Lynchburg Christian Academy is now Liberty Christian Academy. Uh, and it was Chris Long for Stab. And on the uh, LCA side was Rashad Jennings, hmm. who played in the NFL for the Giants for a long time. Uh, so it's kind of funny to think back to that game. And, and Stab won the game. I think Tyler Tipton actually uh, was sort of the star for LCA who stepped in after the quarterback got hurt. He was a guy who went to Pittsburgh at the time. But the, to, to think back going to that game, the, the two guys I saw, uh, the NFL-level guys eventually uh, played in that game. But we'd always ask Al Groh, like, you know, the, the recruiting process of this, how did he kind of come on your radar? Because not a lot of guys recruited Chris Long uh, in college. And he's like – you know, he's local, so we saw a lot of them, knew about him. He's like, let's not complicate this too much, though. The gene pool was pretty good here. <laughs> like, it doesn't take a genius to see that, you know, he, you know, he sort of had the right stuff from a very young age. So, yeah, I, I see a lot of similarities in that sense is that, you know, these sons of NFL players uh, sort of know, you know, how to go about stuff, how to go about their business with us like that. They've obviously seen a professional setting. They know how to emulate that. So I, I think there's a lot of similarities between the two. All right, let's get Wait, this. before we get to uh, the reader questions. This is something I thought of last week, and okay. I know your love of team sayings. Uh, the Virginia Tech T-shirts that they've made for this offseason. I know they have the grit T-shirts and stuff like that. There's another one that they're wearing during uh, workouts. I think that says "facta non verba," <laughs> which loosely translated is like actions over words. Just put actions, not words. <laughs> I wanted your take on facta non verba as a team slogan. No mas, no mas. No, I don't like it. I hate it. I hate it. I mean, it's I, horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Like, come on. Yes, it's 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 terrible. If you're gonna go foreign language, and I know obviously school models are often in Latin. That's not Latin, but uh, it's just, it, yeah, it's not a football phrase, man. You know, the other one was grit mode. Grit mode. What the hell is grit mode? Well, that's at least like I can put the, I can put the pieces together. I know what you're getting at from grit mode. It's just like you know, put some snuff in, go to work. Like that's what grit mode is. Facta non verba. Just <laughs> it, like if you're out in the field, you're like, all right, boys, 
fact and non-verbat. Like, who is going to get behind that? It's like, well, loosely translated, that means this. That's really going to excite me for this situation. Like like you said, you, they could have just said actions, not words, and that would have been a very like you know straight-to-the-point football-type saying. Fact and non-verba. I don't – I just I'm, – I'm curious the origin of that because it just seemed like they maybe – overthought that whole thing well we get sick of the lunch pail tweets you know hey here's the lunch pail over you know it's, it's visiting uh, chick-fil-a or whatever but at least the lunch pail makes sense it's a symbol that makes perfect sense and it's you know it's become cliche here in blacksburg but it makes sense fact and non-verbal or, or whatever I'll, I'll say that i'll give it this it's it's original it's not like you know every every team in the country has had one. It's like all in, <laughs> and like the fan base is like, that's right, we're all in on that. I remember Auburn had that uh, during the national championship season, and actually Clemson had had it prior to that. So all the Clemson fans that year were like, oh Auburn, you just stole our saying. It's like you took that from everything. Like everybody has used the saying. Everybody at some point has said you've got to be all in on this. Like it's it's a poker saying. Like first of all, like I. This is at least original, but man, I, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. I think they could have done a better job. Well, during the slow offseason times, last year I did a, a column on all the ACC teams and which slogans they had and, and ranked them. And I think, in fact, the non-verba is not going to be ranked highly if I do that again this year. Also receiving votes. It's going to be out of the top 12 or whatever you have. That's bad. It's bad. Well, thanks for bringing that up because that is bad. Okay, let's get to the listener questions. We'll alternate here. I'll ask the first one, then you ask the second one, and, and we'll go from there. Again, we have 10 of these. Uh, first one is from Greg on Twitter. Uh, I'm also from Minnesota, and the Vikings are terrible, and I want to die. I'll hang up and listen. Yeah, that's pretty much how I feel. I guess we should read the hash, the uh, the Twitter handles of these people. At GLP underscore VT, Greg on Twitter. Yeah, that wasn't fun last week. And for all the fun I had uh, watching that New Orleans uh, game with the Vikings, it just came crashing down last week. Like, I was all prepared for it. Uh, you know, my daughter, I even got her to learn how to say, go Vikings. I have a I saw that. It, it's adorable uh, the way she said it. Uh, now, if like a football comes on, football game comes on the screen, she still says it. And it's just like a dagger in my heart every time I hear her say it now. Uh, you know, we all had the uniforms, the colors. My daughter had a shirt that my brother sent with the Vikings. Uh, we were all ready for the game. They start off great with a seven, nothing lead. Uh, it just, it was over at that point. They threw the pick six and it just snowballed and they lost the game. Uh, it kind of stinks that the season end like that. Uh, still the fact that they got there with a third string quarterback and, uh, you know, Dalvin cook gets injured earlier in the year. Uh, it's sort of a miraculous season even to get to that point. So you know, from the you know level-headed sports fan, you go, well, you know, sort of fortunate to get there at all. Everything that happened the regular season, the lucky win that they had in the divisional round. At the same time, it's just like, man, that's another crushing way to end the season. So it was, it was not enjoyable in that sense. There's an age-old debate. Would you rather lose like that or would you rather lose on a last-second kick or something? And I always would take the last-second kick because at least you get the entertainment value of the game up to that point. That game was was over at halftime. It was kind of lame. In the moment, obviously, I would take the closer loss because you're at least invested in it. You're like, ah, I could have done it. But in the long run, the ones, the losses that stick with you are the ones that are painfully close. Or like if I were to rank the Vikings NFC championship game losses that I've witnessed, 
the Atlanta game in 99, 99 playoffs where they missed the field goal, Gary Anderson, then Atlanta wins, will always be number one because that team should have won the Super Bowl. Like that's where the heartache comes in. It's like that team was good enough to win. It should have won the Super Bowl. The the Brett Favre team in I think it was 2010, I'm, I'm losing track of the seasons uh, going back where they lost at New Orleans where Favre threw the pick across his body when they could have kicked the field goal to win the game. That was painfully close, and I feel like they could have won the Super Bowl that year. The the two blowout NFC Championship game losses I've witnessed now, uh, New York Giants, they lost 41 to nothing in like 2001, I think the season was. And then obviously this year, those were sort of similar in that they just never really were in it. Like, yeah, that stinks watching it, but I don't think back to that uh, Giants game and go, man, the Vikings were so close. I mean, they lost 41 to nothing. Right. They, they were obviously not the better team. They were obviously not the better team this year. Uh, and then you look back at their season and they're sort of fortunate to get to where they were. So, uh, you know, in terms of painful losses, that 98 team and that 2010 team, uh, those are the more painful losses that I've experienced now. Well, the most painful loss I ever experienced was 1997 American League Championship Series. I was in the stands. The Orioles had gone wire to wire in the AL East, uh, never, never were in second place. Um, Indians were big underdogs, and they won in the in the eleventh inning, one to nothing on a solo home run of um, Armando Benitez. And but Did he had six fingers. It's still was he the six. No, no that was you, Fonseca. Uh, or that was you, Gatherbina, too. I think. And uh, Antonio Fonseca. I'm confusing my Latin but closers. I remember that, that that's still the best game I've ever seen. Uh, Mike Messina, you know, was awesome. The relief core was awesome. The the game just had so much tension throughout, and it was, you know, so as as devastating as it was as an Orioles fan, it also is the best game I've ever seen. So keep that in mind when you when you, these blowouts don't they they won't stick in your memory. You're right. It's just that that you'll just say, well, you'll remember that Saints game, and then you won't remember anything after that, probably. It's all dark. That's all it is. Uh, these next two questions are sort of related, so I'll read them at the same time. This one is from Jay Fletcher at FletcherRVA on Twitter. Is Shane Beamer's new job a stepping stone or a sidestep? And then Willis from Washington, D.C. writes in, who gets a head coaching job first, Shane Beamer or Bud Foster? And this is the a question because Shane Beamer went from Georgia to Oklahoma uh, recently, took a job there. Um, I, kind of a surprising move. I mean, I was in Atlanta talking to Shane a couple weeks ago. I never got the sense that he was thinking about moving. Maybe it, he hadn't been approached at that point. I don't know. It seems uh, such a short time span for that to happen. Uh, going from being special teams coordinator to being uh, in on the offensive game planning at Oklahoma, uh, I just think from that standpoint alone, you look at who these uh, coaches are hiring it's offensive coaches mm -hmm. and guys that have an understanding of the offense. So maybe I think that's. Uh, probably a better move in terms of uh, being more visible to becoming a head coach because that's what Shane wants to do someday. So if he's a game planning with Lincoln Riley and an offense, it's probably going to be pretty dang good. Uh, I think that gets you a lot more attention than being a special teams coordinator at Georgia. And I know Shane had offensive coaching duties. He's a tight ends coach at, at uh, Georgia as well. He'll be doing H-backs and uh, tight ends at Oklahoma, but I think they sort of have that uh, position where you have some input in the game plan. It's probably a little bit more attractive for hiring ADs than if you don't have that. Yeah, I agree. And to, to Willis's question, I don't mean to bash your question, Willis, but that's kind of like asking who's going to get a head coaching job first, uh, Andy Bitter or Shane Beamer. I mean, but the answer is me. <laughs> Bud is not going to be a head coach. Uh, that, that ship has sailed. I think he's made peace with that at this point. Shane, I think, will be a head coach at some point as long as he – stays on the track he's on so uh that's a pretty easy answer for us to make i think 
I think Bud at the end of his career could still give it a shot. I, I think really? I, I don't think Bud will become a head coach at a Power Five school. And I think that's what he's always wanted. That's sort of what he has held out for is a job where he he didn't want to go the Ricky Bustle route, mm-hmm. where you go to what was it Louisiana uh, Lafayette, Lafayette, right? uh, and you sort of middle you know, is middling results for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden you're out, and you sort of lose that upward trajectory in your job. Uh, there just aren't a lot of schools that are hiring, you know, fifty six year old defensive coordinators, however old Bud is right now. That's uh, you know not been a head coach before. It's a tough leap to make. Now they're doing that with offensive coaches. The first chance that they see an offensive coach sort of show uh, any sort of potential as a head coaching candidate, a lot of those guys get opportunities right away. But defensive minded coaches, it's not quite the same. Now I will say. Um, Missouri's longtime defensive coordinator, and I'm forgetting his name now, uh, went to Missouri State late, late in his career, and you wonder why they would do that. I think he just won a shot at, as a head coach at some point. So I, I wonder if when you know things sort of run their course at Virginia Tech, or I wonder if Bud would give it a shot like that, just to say, oh, I gave it a shot as a head coach. But to to your point, I don't think a Power Five job is in his future. Maybe a Liberty or something like that. You know, uh, I don't know if Bud would be a cultural okay, fit yeah, right. at Maybe Liberty, Madison or something. <laughs> you know, that I, I, I owe you an apology, Willis in Washington, because uh, actually that question bore some fruit that I hadn't considered uh, out of Andy there. So uh, good question, actually. Uh, next question comes from. Hokey Fireman, that's at FF underscore Hokey on Twitter. Is the Fuente honeymoon over? I still think you can't judge a coach at a new school till year four for the on-field product, but it seems like a lot of fans are restless. Andy, what do you think? I think any coach gets a year three and the honeymoon's over, regardless of what the results were. Um, you know, Nobody just sort of has this grace period forever that the fans will just, you know, unless you're winning the national championship in year two, obviously they're going to be higher expectations than what you've achieved so far. Now, now Fuente has gone, what, 19 and seven. Is that right? Two years. 19 and seven. Or 19, 19 and eight. eight, 19 and eight, uh, in two years, 10 and four, nine and four. That's pretty good. One, one division title, uh, you know, one and one in bowl games, uh, has been to an ACC championship game was very competitive in that game. Uh, I, like, I think, you know, you sort of mentioned in the column last year, that Georgia Tech game, I think is where it sort of went out the window and they'd already, you'd already seen Virginia Tech lose a couple games to higher ranked opponents, Clemson and Miami, the Miami one sort of a little more grading on Hokies fans nerves and the Clemson one. Cause I think everybody knew the Clemson was a really, really good team. Uh, but then that Georgia Tech game came around and it was two losses in a row and it was, just sort of some second guessing of play calling. I think at that point, just sort of the benefit of the doubt had had gone away. Yeah, I wrote before the bowl game this year that this was the last game where he's playing with house money. Uh, and some people took me to task on that, said, well, no, that's not enough time. But I think in this case, Fuente is a victim of his own success. I think he's raised the expectation level quicker than anybody could have imagined, um, or at least as, as much as anybody could have really realistically hoped. And therefore... Uh, the expectations only go higher. That's the way it works. And um, so I, I think, yeah, I think the honeymoon is over. Um, I think there will still be games that they lose, and you say, well, that's understandable that they lost that game. But uh, I think there will be a lot more of the kind of things we saw during the during the down years at Frank where people were really up in arms when te- when the team lost games than we've seen in the first two years with Fuente here. Now, Hokie Fireman says uh, he's still withhold off judging someone until year four. Uh, in this coaching climate, that's just impossible. 
I mean, it's just impossible. If it's not done by year three now, and sometimes even by year two, you know, schools are moving on. I mean, Jim McElwain was at Florida for two years, and it was obvious that, uh, you know, the, the, the on-field product was not going to be quite I, – I, actually, I think he was there. This was his third year, I think, coming up. But it was obvious that he had sort of, you know, overachieved in those first few years and wasn't quite recruiting up to the level that Florida would expect, and they cut ties with it. I just think you don't have long in this era to, it to do it. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's an instant uh, gratification situation right now. They're paying these coaches so much that, uh, you know, fans lose patience, boosters lose patience, and that's even more important because they're the ones funding a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, I think there's just a lot of pressure on these ADs that you have to look at your hire and go, is this the right hire right away? Let's put it this way. Frank Beamer would not have made it 29 years at Virginia Tech yeah. in this current climate because by year six, it was still like, well, you know, what's this guy doing? Is, is he going to eventually win? And obviously he did. It would have been foolish to pull the plug at that point. But uh, that's just the way the th- things are right now. And, and the good news for Fuente is given that climate that you just talked about, uh, those two years that he's had count. I mean, they, you know, I can judge a coach right away, and I'm judging him very favorably to this point. He's done a whale of a job, and now he's got to keep proving it. I mean, that's the way the world works. All right, next question. This is from Jake Paddish, a Virginia Tech senior. Uh, this is, how do you think Virginia Tech fills the 10th assistant coaching slot for 2018? We have already given out the associate head coach and assistant head coaching titles to Bud and Galen. So what can we really offer for someone besides a new position coaching job? Uh, what's our area of need for geographic recruiting that isn't already covered and on and on. Um, I get asked about the 10th assistant coach more than like anything right now. (laughs) I just, I don't know what to say. I don't really have any concrete updates on the whole thing. Uh, I've sort of written about what I think the position will be. I don't think it's going to be some high priced coach that they bring in because I just don't think they have the budget for it right now. This is a brand new position that they're just adding on to what their existing budget was. So, Whoever they bring in, my guess is it's going to be a young, hungry recruiter that is willing to probably take below market value uh, for the opportunity at coaching in a place like Virginia Tech. I might be wrong, but I just I don't think they're going to break the bank to bring in somebody uh, with just this wealth of experience that's an established coach in another place because – you know, quite honestly, they have everything kind of covered. They have all the bases covered. Uh, I think somebody could come in and maybe coach tight ends specifically, and that would free up James Shebest to just do special teams instead of having to do both. Uh, but even then, the, the way the practices are sort of set up, it's like special teams have their own designated periods where everybody's involved. All the coaches are sort of involved coaching that, and Shebest sort of runs the show. And then there are other periods where he's off coaching the tight ends while the other position coaches do their stuff. So I, I think it's almost sort of set up that – you don't need to separate those two. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's a uh, room on the defense. I know Cody Graham has sort of been helping out with the whip linebackers. Uh, I don't know if they'd ever consider promoting a quality control assistant like that or if they're going to go out and find somebody that's recruited before. But I think there's always value in recruiting. Uh, and there's, that's always something that you're looking for. And the 10th coach is, I mean, the, the real big benefit to that whole thing, I think, is there's another person out on the road that you can hit different stops. And, you know, a lot of these staffs already have somebody that's sort of, 
yeah, they're a position coach, but really they're there for recruiting. So I, th- I think this opens up an opportunity that you can even do more of that, where it's like, yeah, we, we sort of have the position coaches or positions covered on the field. We just need somebody out there that can be a really dynamic recruiter and can uh, reach these guys. And maybe somebody younger on the staff could fill that role. But uh, yeah, I don't know who it is. I haven't had a chance to talk to Fuente. He's on the road recruiting right now. I will say that it doesn't seem like there's really this sense of urgency for Tech to have somebody in place. Uh, the fact that there's a, a the, the early signing period, uh, you know, that got a lot of this class's recruiting out of the way. So I, I don't think they're like, we need to get this guy in and finish this recruiting class. I think a lot of coaches are sort of just taking their time, maybe sort of seeing how the, the field and the market uh, works itself out with this 10th uh, position coach being added. And they'll figure it out, you know, around signing day or maybe even after. Okay, good deal. Next question comes from Glenn with one N at GJPVT09 on Twitter. Did A.J. Bush transfer? You know, it, I, I've heard that Brad Cornelson, the offensive line or offensive coordinator, said at the Hokie Club meeting that uh, A.J. was going to be a graduate transfer this year. Uh, I inquired about that after I sort of uh, got some messages about that. Uh, Virginia Tech's official position right now is he's still there. He's still on scholarship. It sounds like he's exploring his options. Uh, I think that's maybe how they can couch the language right now. It would not surprise me. Uh, I, I think the, the sense is that he still wants a shot at quarterback, and he's not going to get that uh, at Virginia Tech with an established starter and Josh Jackson, some younger guys like Hendon Hooker, uh, transfer Ryan Willis that came in from Kansas, Quincy Patterson once he gets here. I think he can take the temperature of the room and go, you know, I'm probably not going to get a shot here. Um, if he's going to stay here, it probably means a position switch. And he's athletic enough to do something like that and play receiver. But you also consider he's put a lot of time and effort into practicing and being a quarterback. I mean, he goes to these uh, quarterback teaching schools in Arizona, or at least he did uh, after he was transferring from uh, Nebraska to Iowa Western Community College. Uh, so I think he has a lot invested in the quarterback position. I'm, I'm curious to see what his options would be at this point uh, when he does graduate and can go for immediate eligibility next year. Uh, I'd be curious to see what sort of level of program he can play at. And uh, maybe that's why uh, keeping the options open by still being a tech right now, obviously he needs to finish his degree before he can do that transfer. But uh, I would expect that you'd hear something official when he has a destination because you probably don't want to say, I'm, gra- I'm transferring and that's for sure, and then uh, you don't find a, a landing spot, and then you go, uh, actually, can I come back and still be in scholarship and switch positions? So I think that's sort of where that is. Yeah, four different schools in a college career is a lot, but I would I would agree with you. I'd say go if you, you, know, if you can find an opportunity out there because you're right. It doesn't look like it, it's in the cards in Blacksburg for him to be a, a starting quarterback. All right, uh, you got this one. You can read this one. I'll read the next okay. one. Okay, this one's from Cody Morton, at Cody J. Morton uh, on Twitter. Uh, how significantly, if at all, does the drop-off in re- running back production impact our ability to, to pull in elite recruits in that position, i.e. Devin Ford in the 2019 class? I've always been kind of intrigued by that. And, you know, you hear the messaging from Fuente every week, and he sort of backed off this a little bit late last season and probably in an effort to make that sort of recruiting pitch to these high-profile running backs. And, you know, he's always been like, I don't care where the running yards come by. You know, like, we're going to run the ball with receivers and the rounds and the quarterback and running backs. And I like a lot of guys to get involved. And, you know, if I'm a star running back recruit and I'm hearing that, I'm hearing my workload might not be that great. 
Um, and now you heard Fuente change his tune a little bit late last year, and he would he would couch that with, you know, if we had a star running back or a guy that was head and shoulders above the rest, I'd give him those kind of carries. So maybe that was trying to get the message out to some of these guys uh, that, yeah, the opportunities will be there if you're really all that as a running back, but they really haven't had somebody like that. So uh, I think that's part of the messaging to somebody like Devin Ford who's going to be one of the top recruits in the state uh, as a running back this year. Uh, Tech has missed out on some of those running backs lately. I don't know if that's related to how they use the running backs or just, you know, that's sort of been uh, the trend lately is the top flight guys in Virginia just go elsewhere. I know they got to go to Florida State, uh, whose name off the top of my head is escaping me right now. Uh, there have been a couple guys that it seems like they would be good fits for this sort of uh, offense and could have a star role, and they've gone elsewhere. And Virginia Tech's had to sign guys lower on the totem pole on their their recruiting boards uh, to fill in the spot. But you know, I look at the roster right now: Stephen Peoples, Deshaun McLeese, Jalen Holston, and Caleb Stewart coming in. I don't see a guy that's just head and shoulders above the field there. Possibly, if you get somebody like Devin Ford, that could change that. It, it's sort of a chicken egg chicken and egg thing, though. It's like, how do you convince that top flight recruit to come here if you haven't shown that you have had a, a history of, of giving the running backs like that? And how can you show that if you don't have a top flight guy? Right. So, uh, you know, it's sort of the dilemma that Virginia Tech is in. I think they just need sort of somebody to demonstrate that in this offense, uh, a guy can be a featured back and, and maybe some of those other running backs will take notice. Well, I like that question because I think I've actually raised that question to you on, on previous podcast, uh, because I've, I wondered that, that same thing myself. Uh, and I think that's a good answer you gave. Well, uh, you want to ask the next question? I will ask the next question. Did we give the name of the person who asked the previous question? Uh, Co- yeah, Cody Morton. Cody Morton. Okay. Cody Morton. Uh, this is from Brian Larson at Brian J. Larson on Twitter. Uh, who often responds to our tweets on there. We we appreciate all the interaction there. Uh, he obviously listens to the podcast or pays attention to us on Twitter because his question is, what is the greatest Simpsons episode of all time? This is a hard one. Uh, I'm going to go with Homer Goes to College, and that is uh, written by Conan O'Brien. Um, any Anyone that Conan O'Brien is involved with is great. Uh, I just... The reason I'm picking that, I, I've seen it a million times, but even if I see it's going to be on, I'll make time for it and watch it. It's just from start to finish, it's hilarious. Uh, it, it plays off of a lot of the uh, the tropes that we know, you know, from our movies growing up about college and jocks and nerds and and uh, and Homer's at his best uh, in that episode. Curly straight. You've got uh, the idiot dropped his notes. You've got. Uh, Take you know, the starch of that Dean's collar. The Dean, the hacky sack, and Dean, bass player for the Pretenders. It, it is just loaded. Uh, my kids love that episode. They love all the old ones just like I do, but uh, that's one of their favorites too, so I'm going to go with that one. I'm kind of angry that you said that one because that was in my group of contenders for number one. We've long maintained on this podcast that someday we'll do a uh, a draft of the top episodes of all time. Now I know what you go with for number one, so maybe we've kind of spoiled that. Um and also, I'd point out that a lot of listeners <laughs> listen to this like, why would you care about The Simpsons? What is that awful show that's been on forever that's not that funny anymore? Uh, we're talking about early era Simpsons here, probably through season 12. Well, that's the thing. My kids watch all the old ones, and they know how sucky the new ones are. But they go to school, and they talk to their friends about how great The Simpsons is. And their friends are like, what are you talking about? Simpsons is stupid. And they're right. I would imagine a lot of listeners, particularly anybody in college right now, yeah. is probably of the same opinion because exactly. you know about 
around the turn of the centuries when the show just sort of started to decline. But in, you know, in the nineties, that was like the Halcyon era. That was like, you know, throwing 99 in every episode and there were no duds in there. Uh, one that I, I think it was a Conan O'Brien episode. And the one that maybe I would choose is the monorail episode. Yeah. Uh, it just has so many good parts to it. Uh, it's such a ridiculous premise about a monorail coming in. It's got the whole Music Man, uh, you know, parody of that whole thing. It's it's really it, close to peak Phil Hartman on that show. I know he's got plenty of peak moments. Uh, you've got Homer's involvement with the monorail. You've got Leonard Nimoy's uh, amazing cameo <laughs> at the end where he's like the solar eclipse, the cosmic dance goes on or something like that. And the guy next to him is like, anybody want to switch seats? <laughs> That's always like the go-to response whenever somebody tries to get really like poetic and something like that. It's like, anybody want to switch seats? Uh, that's just sort of at the top of the list. It's got a great song in it. Yeah. That's always a good part of it. Everything came off my pudding can. Yeah, I mean, everything about that. That was very early, and I want to say there was a Conan O'Brien episode as well. So maybe we're just sort of drawn to those. I was thinking of a couple others. I think the sexual harassment one, the yes. Homer Badman is a great one. Terrific. Um, I, I like Homer at the Bat, the softball one. I don't like that one. You don't like that no. one? Really? I mean, I, I like it. But I, yeah, I wouldn't put it in my top 50, probably. Really? I think that one is an excellent uh, episode. Uh, I, I was looking at some lists that people had. Mr. Plow was way up there. Yeah. I think I'd agree with that. Um, the Cape Fear episode. That's really good. I, I, there's something when they're they're parodying a specific thing in pop culture that is th- th- somehow that show just had an excellent way of doing that when they wrapped the entire episode around that uh, very Bob early on, made, made all episodes good. There was Phil the uh, made ones good. The the one with the bear uh, gets a lot. Was bear it patrol Ro- rosebud. That, oh, the, that, yeah, okay. that gets a lot of love in these lists that people have, and I, I don't too I don't, high. I don't rate it high. The uh, another one was the uh, the dental plan one where yes. Homer is the union rep yes. with the Lisa needs braces moment. I think the stone cutters is way up there. That's an excellent one. Uh, start to finish, just the premise of that is excellent. You know, I remember when I was in college, they were running one. It was like a reader or like a, a viewer uh, votes on it. And the number one episode on that was so absurdly ridiculous. It was the the like uh, Homer goes to the chili cook-off and like hallucinates <laughs> when he has the pepper. And it's like yeah, Johnny like Johnny Cash is the, the coyote. And I'm like, what? That should be nowhere near no. number one. Uh, a couple other ones I saw was the Frank Grimes episode. Yeah, I think a lot strong. of people a lot of people don't like that though. I think oh, a lot like of people mention that as like the jumping the shark moment of the show. No, uh, I thought that was pretty good. Who shot Mr. Burns? Parts one and two is pretty good. Another moment where people kind of look at it and go, after that, the show wasn't as good. Another one that I really like is the uh, Timmy O'Toole uh, falling down the well. Yeah. Uh, if for nothing else, the uh, the uh, cast collaboration singing the song of sending their love down the well with Sting uh, leading the one, knocking Funky C, Funky Do from number one. Uh, I think the song is I Do Believe We're Naked yes. from number one. Uh, as you can tell, we could go on and on and on and list these. Whenever I list the top five episodes, I list at least like 15 episodes in that. So it would be impossible to pare it down. But I think Monorail on the whole – I don't know. There's something about that just sort of captures the entire essence of The Simpsons and why that show is so great. That's a, that's a fine choice. And the reason I don't like Homer at the Bat is the reason I don't like so many of the of the future episodes uh, that came after season 12 is it's, it's celebrity driven. <clears throat> it's guest star driven, and I don't like guest star driven Simpsons episodes. I don't need it. 
if it was there's there's something different about that one though is where guest star driven where it's just like hey britney spears is here and then they show up and they're like hi i'm britney spears and then that's the end of the cameo that's stupid and it's not productive but they have these cameos on that and then they made them all so ridiculous like Wade Boggs arguing with with uh, Barney about who the best uh, British prime minister was. Right. Uh, and I saw some some documentary about this, and they were interviewing Wade Boggs about that. And they're like, well, you know, what was that like recording for it? He's like, well, I showed up, and they just told me to say Pitt the Elder in an increasing <laughs> level of rage. And he's like, I said it like 10 times, and it took me like 20 seconds, and that was it. That was the entire <laughs> recorded it's like, you know, Ken Griffey with the grotesquely swollen jaw and Steve Sachs with his running with the law. I could go through the song on this whole thing, but it's just sort of the caricature that those uh, baseball players were involved in their cameos. You know, Don Mattingly sort of uh, making fun of Steinbrenner with the st- the, the sideburns and Daryl Strawberry being the all hustle guy, which is sort of opposite of what his char- his actual athlete persona was. I think the way they handled those um, uh, cameos was much better than they've handled other cameos on the show. So that's why I think that one works. I think many people view the one where uh, what's what's her name? She was on, oh, gosh, she was on American Horror Story, uh, Lady Gaga. They rate re- re- the Lady Gaga one as I the, never as saw the absolute worst. If you can go back and look at any of those clips from the Lady Gaga, you'll see what happens when celebrities get out of hand. All right, I'll read the next question here. We went a little long on that one. I apologize. You get us on a Simpson rant, and we'll get yeah. going. We could oh. talk a whole podcast about that. We really could. All right, this one's from Jeremy Beverly, uh, at Coach J. Bev on Twitter. Can we still get a Pimpleton minute even though he's moved on to a new school? You want to answer this? Because I would be all for it. I know you, you – know, I think it's probably a non sequitur now, but it was kind of always a non sequitur, and I loved it. I was going back through some of our recent podcasts, and it made me sad. It brought a tear to my eye when I heard – the thrilling thing, thing, thing. I mean, it just made me sad. It would be weird to continue doing it without sort of that hook that you bring it in. Like sometimes it'd be like, it's time for the people in a minute. He did not play. I'm going to use this to carve out my own little section of the podcast. Uh, maybe there's another like pun on a name we could do. I, I think it's nice that it sort of ran its course. I think some people were like, oh, that joke got tired after several episodes of it. And, you know, that's sort of what we do here is we run jokes into the ground. So I don't know. Uh, it, yeah, I feel like it would be betraying the spirit of the Pimpleton Minute to continue doing it without Pimpleton actually being here. Okay, let's 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 compromise. Um, if he does something extraordinary at Central Michigan, we can do it once. We can – next year – does he have to? He has to sit out, so it'll be a while. But if we're still doing this podcast in a couple of years, and he has a uh, his first career hundred yard game, I will I will surprise everyone with the, with the sound, and we'll we'll bring it back for that. But we will we will lay it to rest otherwise. How's that sound? That sounds good to me. Okay. That's a good way to. You read this next one too. Uh, this one's from Sean Driscoll uh, at Sean Driscoll on Twitter. That's Sean Driscoll 2. Okay, sorry. I, I Not to be confused with Sean Driscoll 1 on Twitter. <laughs> Sean Driscoll 1 had already taken that one. Uh, and Sean is spelled S-H-A-W-N if you're looking for him on Twitter. Uh, favorite travel story you can tell about at Aaron McFarling? Well, there are a lot I could possibly tell here. I, I asked you this before the podcast, and you brought up one. I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's the the, the moment that I should talk about is, you know, it was at the Sugar Bowl – in you know 2011 season 2012 the the year had turned to the next one i was still sort of new 
on the beat at that point, so I guess I was kind of feeling out what it was like to be a travel companion of Aaron McFarlane on trips like this. Uh, New Orleans gave me everything I need to know about that. Obviously, there's a casino on the way from the hotel media or the media hotel to Bourbon Street. There's a casino about halfway on that trip. Harris, Harris in New Orleans. Uh, you spent. 97% of your time <laughs> in New Orleans at the casino. I don't know what it was. I, I, I'm not a huge casino guy. I like to go every now and then. I'm just not a fan of losing money. Uh, obviously, Aaron goes there and he wins money. Rubber band banks. That's why he does it. Uh, but I went there for uh, close to the last night, I think, um, to play some craps. I'm not a big craps person, so I was just sort of following along with you. Uh, you had been a little ailed up, I think it's fair to say, at the table. We had an amazing run uh, early on. Uh, you know, Aaron's sitting there and is uh, telling me, he's like, no, oh, man, once it gets up to like an old an old man <laughs> that was the shooter in this thing, he's like, oh, these old guys are terrible. They never win anything. And this guy went on like an hour-long run. And I remember there's like, is, remember there's like some Armenian like shipping magnet. I don't know who it was that was to my left that was like betting just ungodly sums of money and just like rode this guy to a huge uh, payday on that particular one. I just kept doing simple bets. So I, I made out pretty well for myself. I think you did too. Uh, but you're pretty ailed up and the guy throws something and he, you thought he hit the point. You thought he hit an eight and it was actually a seven. And, and Aaron just goes, it's an eight. And he's high-fiving everybody. They say, it's an eight. It's an eight. And then the guy, they're like, uh, actually, it's a seven, Aaron. And then the guy at the end of the table that was shooting, the old man, is the crotchety old man. It's like, I don't know what number you were looking at. And Aaron had to apologize profusely. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I won't do that like that again. And you, you sort of curtailed your behavior for a while but later that night joy behar uh from the view i don't yeah. know if she's still on that show i don't watch that show but she showed up at the table uh with somebody i didn't know who she I, was i had no idea i knew vaguely who she was i had to like look it up later to make sure that's who it was uh, but she was at the table like our end of the table and like I, I think it was it was like super craps or something where you could make the point on uh yeah four and ten or can you make it on four and ten normally yeah you can make it on four ten this it's went called, down to three and, ele- and uh, no, eleven yeah no number it was called craps no more every number could be marked as a point so you you know you get a two on your first roll then you're rolling after a two okay well so I think the point was a two and uh, you know she kind of was like nobody's ever gonna get a two and Aaron is like no no. We hit this one earlier. Again, remember, he's ailed up pretty well. It's like, we hit this one earlier. It's going to happen. And then, like, two rolls later, it's like, seven out. It's like, oh, okay, well, we'll get it next time. It's like, long story short, Joe Behar did not spend much time at the table. So that was that was the time that Aaron chased off Joy Behar from the craps table we were at in New Orleans. Uh, I think that's a good pick. Uh, Runner-up would be when I wrote the week three story on the way down to East Carolina. I think that's probably that, – that's a good memory for us both. That was a good one. Another good one was when I talked you off the ledge of tweeting something about Louis C.K. <laughs> Aaron is a big Brian Regan fan and had put out a uh, a poll last spring, I think, about who is the better comedian, Louis C.K. or Brian Regan. And Louis C.K. crushed the poll. As you Obvi- predicted, he would. Obviously, Louis C.K. has had been in the news lately. Aaron wanted to come back and revisit that situation. <laughs> Again, was perhaps a little ailed up when he was going to do this. Uh, I talked him out of any such tweets uh, <laughs> about that subject. I thought that just nothing good was going to come out of that. So that that was a good moment of restraint on your part with a little assistance for me. <laughs> well, at least I had the, the presence of mind to ask you. I read it out loud to you and you said, no, no, don't, don't do that. I said, this 
probably probably not. probably pass on that one. Well, I, I enjoyed our trip to when we watched uh, Hokie Joe Saunders uh, beat Texas too. That was fun. Uh, last question here. Do you want to read it or should I? You can read this one. Okay. This is from James Xavier Priatel. Uh, it's at James Priatel on Twitter. Virginia Tech seems to have lost its ability to win big games. Ohio State, Battle at Bristol, ACC Championship, Clemson, Miami, Oklahoma State. What is Fuente slash the team doing to succeed and improve their record when it comes to big games? Uh, be better in general. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's necessarily this uh, magic formula to win big games other than you just need to be a little bit better. I mean, you, you look at that list of games – uh, Ohio State, obviously Ohio State at home uh, when they lost that game. Battle of Bristol ACC Championship against Clemson. Clemson this year, Miami, Oklahoma State. Virginia Tech was an underdog in all of those games. Uh, you know, it's, it's always, you know, that stat gets brought up. as like Virginia Tech's 1-30 or something like that against top five teams all time. And people go, oh, that's terrible. It's like, well, they're top five teams for a reason. <laughs> and Virginia Tech is often not a top five team going into that game. So, you know, is there something to playing better than what you're supposed to in games like that. I don't know. I mean, um, you know, sometimes you see these teams that do really well in that, and then they just have these emotional letdowns in every other game that they have. Uh, you know, that was sort of the case in that Ohio state game in, uh, 2014 when Virginia tech pulled the upset up at the horseshoe, and then they come back and lose to ECU next to end up going six and six on the season. Uh, you know, is that more frustrating than losing games that you should be losing against really, you know, top-notch competition? Uh, I, I think the key to it is just to continue to get better and collect talent. And uh, I, guess, I guess maybe the the flip side of that is Virginia Tech hasn't lost a lot of games that it, it shouldn't have lost lately. Right. And they've won those games that they're supposed to win. So, I, you know, I guess that's the trade-off. They've been consistent in that. But uh, yeah, it, I, I think the key to just winning those games is just to be better. I know it's a stupid answer and it's simplistic, but uh, when you're a better team and you have more talent, you have a better chance of, of pulling off wins in those kind of games. Well, and I go back to what Charlie Wiles said a few years ago. He says, look, you guys only count it as a big game if we lose. You know, look, Virginia is a big game every year. It's I consider it a big game even though they should win that game. West Virginia this year was a big game. I consider that a big game. Winning at North Carolina last season in the in the fashion they did, that was a big game. Every game that they had to win in order to get to that ACC title game was a big game. Uh, I thought they played very well in that ACC title game. They covered the spread. You know, I care about that. Um so I don't know if it's fair to say that they're just not they're ne they never show up in the big games. Uh, but I would agree with you, uh, and and I, I understand the the reader's uh, point there is that you know he wants he wants to have huge huge wins against highly ranked teams, and that's of course what what Fuente wants too. And I think you're right; it starts with the recruiting and goes from there. But uh, I think you need to be careful about saying they never have big wins because they do they can they've gotten some very nice wins uh, in the two years that Fuente's been there yeah that North Carolina win in 2016 in the rain the hurricane game I know exactly. a lot of people discounted because of that that was an utter dominating performance against a team that was ranked higher than them at the point uh, I think North Carolina was the underdog in that game when it started I think they, they were favorites earlier in the week and then the weather forecast kind of came around and tech maybe went off as a one or two-point favorite, something like that in that game, but they won that game 34-3. to three. Right. I mean, they played as well as you could in those conditions, 
And you know, I know people will discount. Oh, it's in the weather. It's like, well, Tech played in that weather too. They didn't have a dome for when Virginia Tech had the ball offensively. Uh, so that was a big win that they had there. Uh, you know, if you're going to count Oklahoma State as a big game, I mean, could you count Arkansas in the bowl game as a big game? I mean, Miami at home last year. I mean, yeah, I mean, that was that was a big game too. So. Yeah, I think sometimes it does kind of get lost when you lose those games. I, I think maybe more specifically, it's when are they going to win some of these games against you know top ten teams? And I, that goes back to that's tough to do. Those are top ten teams for a reason. Uh, you know, I'll point out a, a situation like Iowa last year. Iowa was so up and down, and you know it beats Ohio State, just beats the tar out of them. It was fifty-five to twenty something, or rather thirty-some point victory, and then goes out and just plays terribly the next week against Wisconsin. It's tough to maintain that level from week to week. So I think most fans would probably take a more consistent program over one that plays really well in a game like that and then comes back to earth and kind of is all over the place uh, against bad teams. But yeah, to his point, I, I think uh, Virginia Tech would like fans would like to see more wins of that sort of caliber. That's why you hire a coach like Fuente. You put him in place. You let him sort of build up the roster over time. I think it'll happen over time. Uh, these first couple of years has still sort of been a building process, but there have been moments that that you know maybe people don't bring up quite as often that were big wins in that time. Well, speaking of big games, we like to get out of here on on predictions. So the big games next week, Super Bowl. Uh, I won't Are be we licensed to say that the big game. <laughs> yeah, so we have to I love it. it. I love all the all the uh, commercials <laughs> don't have the licensing for it, so they have to call it the big game. And, and I always I always said I actually wrote this one time. It'd be great if like somebody offered tickets to the big game, you know, as a, as a contest. And when the guy won, they found out they were going to a Louisiana Lafayette uh, women's basketball game or something. You know, Hey, that's, that's a big game. You know? It's big in Lafayette. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Well, we'll go with six and a half for the spread. Uh, New England is favored. What do you think? If it's going by the spread, I'll take the Eagles because you look at the history of New England Super Bowl wins, and they're all close, yeah. and they're all a field goal or less. I think the widest margin of victory they had was last year against the Falcons, and that's only because they scored the touchdown in overtime, and that was a game they were down 28-3. to uh, you know, New England finds ways to win all these games, but they're always really close. It always comes down to a small play here or there. Um, you give Belichick two weeks to prepare for Nick Foles. I think he's going to do well. I think Nick Foles used up whatever magic he has last week. Like, I think it was Drew Maggery, uh or McGarry, however you pronounce his last yeah, name, yeah. At, at Deadspin last week that tweeted. It's like, you just know that you know Foles is playing like Joe Montana this week. He's going to play like Tim Tebow in the Super Bowl. Like, you just know it. And that's coming from a bitter Viking fan like uh, McGarry and myself, whose actual last name is Bitter, so it fits well. I, I just I cannot see Nick Foles duplicating that performance uh, against. I know, you know New England's defense is not great, but I think you give Belichick enough time to game plan that he'll figure out a way to confuse Nick Foles, and then Tom Brady's going to be Tom Brady. I just think they win. I picked both those games right on the podcast last week, although I lost both of my bets because I ended up taking Jacksonville on the money line. That's a loser. With the points, that's a winner. And I flipped my pick to Minnesota just because I wanted to root along with you. I, it was a it was a hard oh, pick. No, don't put this loss no, 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 on me. No, it was five dollars. It was nothing. But uh, it, you know, and I, so I was just disappointed in in the in the rubber band banks acquisition. But I felt felt good about my picks, and I feel good about this one too. I like Philly in the points a lot, a lot. Yeah, New England. Was New England's wearing white. Uh, the Super Bowl winner has worn white in twelve of the last Super twelve of the last thirteen Super Bowls. Well, there you go. So I mean, ball game right there. 
you know, I was wrong about one thing when I said Gronk was the MVP of that team. <laughs> <laughs> I texted you when he went out with his concussion. I said, well, it's over. It's over. This is a money in the bank. And and then there was just silence. No reply from you. And then, of course, the, the lead just – Did I not reply to that eventually? I, I thought I did. did. <laughs> yes. Okay. They got Brady. Brady be okay. Brady's still the MVP. Okay. Brady or Danny Amendola, you know. <laughs> It's you know, neck and neck for who is the MVP of that. All right. Well, enjoy that game. And Andy may have a, a, a special podcast for you next week without me in it. Uh, and we'll get together again here soon and, and have some more fun. Thanks for everyone. Thanks to everyone who sent out uh, questions. Sorry if we didn't get to yours. And thanks to everyone for listening. We all I'll have a lot of fun here. and We hope you do too. For Andy Bitter, this is Aaron McFarling. We will see you next time.